All right. Well, this is going to be exciting, ladies and gentlemen. We're here for a nice bonus broadcast. I am joined right now by my good friend, Timothy Gordon. Uh, this is, we're bringing him in. Tim, you there? Yo, I'm here. What Thanks, is bro. going on, Tim? Well, we are here. We are here to talk with Charles Coulom. He's, we're going to bring him in just a second, but this is a special wrap-up broadcast for the book club, Windswept House, Maliki Martin. Um, we've got uh, questions for a man who knew Father Martin, and uh, man, oh man, I, I, I am excited to do this. We've been waiting a couple of weeks to get this on the books, and here we are, Tim. So how, how are you feeling today? I'm pretty I'm excited. Well. Oh, oh yeah. both of you guys. Both of you guys. Well, hello, Tim. Hello, Charles. Go ahead. How's everybody feeling? Back so in the good. States. <laughs> Tim, you talk, not me. <laughs> Charles, good to see you, man. You're back in the States. I, I'm great. I'm, I'm excited to be talking to you about, about uh, Father Martin. It's an um, interesting man. And uh, I didn't know him all that long uh, because he didn't live, I, I guess I know him about seven years maybe, all right? Um, but you'll hear all about that in due course. Well, that's what I wanted to start with, Charles, and it was great to talk to you a little bit beforehand. Uh, it, it's uh, it's amazing to see how much how much we have in common, especially your some of your your roots over here in New York and a lot of uh, familiar familiar places that we held in common and all that. But but this is this is another thing because um, the work of Father Martin has been really uh, something I've been so enthralled by by a long time for a long time. I still listen to. All of his seven appearances on Art Bell's radio show from the 90s, almost almost weekly. It's just something I pass the time with. I just love the conversation there. So the first thing I'd like to ask you, because it seems like you knew him during the years that he was making those radio appearances, what were the circumstances that led to your meeting uh, Father Martin? Well, my first book, Every Man Today Call Rome, initially E.T. Call Rome, uh, until the wrath of Spielberg altered the name. Uh, it came out in uh, 1987, and uh, somehow or other, Father Martin got a copy of it, and so he wrote me a letter, and he uh, said, when you're in New York next, please come see me. So I did, uh, and this was, this was an interesting meeting because um, he lived with a Greek shipping family called Ivanos. The reasons for which you explained to me, which I'll explain to you. And this is kind of important to know because a lot of people enjoy scandal. As uh, my late father used to say, people who are easily scandalized generally enjoy it a whole lot. And I found this to be the case while I knew him. Inevitably, people would bring up uh, certain things, which I happened to know the other end of, and you know, bring them to me with a great outrage. My personal favorite was the priest who said to me, you know, he lives with a Filipino woman. And I said, yes, I do. I've met her. She's the maid. <sighs> wow. Because we get a lot of that. I know that, I know that Tim wanted to, to talk a little bit about that, too. I sure did. Um, and, and just for everybody's uh, background, because we, we've been talking about you a little bit on my show and, and prepping what this, this conversation was going to be about. You are a historian. You are a writer. Um, and, you, of course, this now we know. This is how you cross paths. It was actually through your writing. Um, what was the subject matter of the, the book that you wrote in 1987 that caught the attention of Father Martin? Uh, what was the subject matter? I forget. Well, what it was, um, 
it was basically, it started out, frankly, as a letter to my classmates in high school when I realized that I was the only one who still went to Mass. So you got to bear in mind that in those far-off days, there were no Tridentine Masses to speak of in most places. There just weren't. People forget how far we've come from then. Yeah. I realize a lot of our uh, the members of the hierarchy, a lot of them would like to restore, return us to the 70s. Um, I tell you what, I'm going to wear double-knit bell-bottoms before I do that. <laughs> but nevertheless, that was the way it was. It was a very, as far as the, the faith went, it was a very, very dark time. In many ways, darker than it is now. Well, anyway, I, I digress. Uh, so I found that uh, I was the only one who went to Mass, and I understood why that was. And my book actually started out as a letter to them to explain why our generation lost the faith. And it got bigger and bigger. And then I heard of a group of laymen who were putting together a press to bring out unusual Catholic stuff. So I said, all right, fine, this is unusual. <laughs> I said it to them, everything would be published and what I was. So uh, I wrote it actually when I was 24. Uh, it came out when I was 27. Uh, and as I say, someone or other gave it to Father Martin. He read it. And when I came out next, I saw him. So he invites me to meet him at his home. And this was a a large brownstone style apartment, a, 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 a townhouse apartment, you know, a couple of stories owned by the shipping family. And they had an original El Greco over the fireplace. That's, you don't see those very often in no. private homes. So he was not I go to. Living like a baller, huh? Well, indeed, and he explained the whole story to me. I guess I might as well explain it uh, to yourself and your listeners. When he wanted to be, uh, wanted to leave the Jesuits, he was in New York, and he talked to Cardinal Cook, who was his great patron. And he said to Cardinal Cook, look, I don't want to be laicized, I don't want to leave the priesthood, but I am leaving the society. What do I do? I mean, I, I, I doubt I'd be very useful as a parish priest. So Cardinal Cook said, he said, the first thing he said was, uh, I'm going to have to get an apartment. Cardinal Cook said, no, you don't. So what do you mean? If you live by yourself, no matter what you do, you're going to be a source of scandal. If you live by yourself, it will be irreparable. I'll find a family for you to live with. And he did. The Lamanoi. So... That was how he came to live with them. Oh, yes, and the Filipino maid. Wow. Uh, or, sorry, Filipina. I, I, I want to be, you know, specific here. That's interesting. That's interesting. We have to get you with a family. If you live on your own, you're going to be subject to temptation and just... Temptation, and also people will whisper. People will they'll be gossip. Mm. You know, if, if, the, if the delivery boy brings pizza, guess what? Everybody will know you're having an affair. Right. That kind of thing. Right. So, uh, you know, it, it's it's spared him one kind of scandal and, of course, opened him to another. But, you know, uh, as I say, people who are easily scandalized generally enjoy it a whole lot. Yes, yeah, so, we're seeing that a lot these days, yes. Okay, continue. I'm sorry. Well, not at all. So 
uh, from that time on, when I uh, I informed him a second edition of the book was coming out, and he uh, volunteered to give a blurb, which he did. If you see the second edition of the book, there it is. Um, I got to know him. I mean, I saw him maybe four or five times. I talked to him on the phone many, many times. Uh, one of the interesting things, and this I really have to bring up, because whatever else anybody wants to say about him, this is for me kind of the, uh, the the price of admission. As you might imagine, through my book, I got to know a lot of younger people. And this one uh, black kid here in California who had read himself into the church uh, and then encountered my book, contacted me, and we got to know each other a bit. But he wanted to go to USD, the University of San Diego. He didn't have any money. I mentioned this in passing to Father Martin. He never met the kid, and he paid his four years tuition. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. He never met him. So it's not even as though, it's not even as though, you know, as the wicked minded would think he might get something out of it. He never met the kid. In fact, it may very well be that he particularly did not meet the kid for just that reason. Yeah, yeah. Tim, do you, do you, anything you want uh, to jump in on, Tim? Uh, yeah, you told me that story once, uh, Charles. That that's amazing. So where where does this fit into the? Is it unjust allegations that the the journalists made uh, uh, against Father Martin uh, regarding uh, philandering with his wife? Did you and well, do you buy that? And did did that ever come up with him? It did. It never came up. But I'll tell you what did come up. Now remember, the philandering was supposed to have gone on during the time was, that he was a Jesuit. Right, right. Now that's this is a very, very important thing to understand about Malachi Martin. His life breaks into two pieces. Liberal Jesuit and the, the rest of it. I said the rest of it because you wanted to find it for yourself. Now, what he said to me about his own past was this. He said he was a typical garden variety liberal Jesuit. Now, bear in mind that that meant a lot of, could mean a lot of terrible things back then. <laughs> yeah, still could mean a lot of terrible things. Covers a multitude of sins. Yeah. Uh, and certainly I wasn't his confessor. But put yourself in the mindset for a minute of the kind of people who didn't have a problem with Carl Rahner having a mistress. Or he and this other fellow at Vatican II vying for her affections as expressed in who'd get to offer mass in her apartment. This is kind of a really weird, bizarro clerical culture they had at that time. And I, you know, I, I can't comment on it except that uh, to this day, of course, I, I wonder how, I wonder how a priest can do all sorts of things and without seeming any problem then offer mass. Oh, well. It was Anyhow, the 70s. It was the 70s. <laughs> it was the 70s. Mistakes were made. The, uh, you know, when the, when the Holy Father went on about, uh, you know, uh, ignore Grandma's lace, my immediate thought was, Holy Father, tell you what, stop wearing her polyester vestments and stop acting like her hairdresser. How about that? Anyway, sorry, just a little bit of a rant there, a rantlet. Anyhow, as, uh, as luck would have it, uh, 
he had already be, begun his career as a writer and was making money out of it, was doing well. And then he was going to write a book debunking exorcism and showing it up for the fraud it must undoubtedly be, since we all know such things can't possibly happen in this modern world. Well, he went on several exorcisms. And that was the beginning of his conversion. Wow. Because the, the most disturbing thing for him, as you can imagine, was the possessed person's ability to call out the mortal, the unconfessed mortal sins of the viewer, of the, of the witnesses. That really shook him up. Because, you see, if the devil is literally true, if all that stuff is literally true, and maybe the rest of it's true, too, you know, about God and the Trinity and the Blessed Sacrament and all the rest of it. And that was really the beginning. Of course, the book totally changed. It became hostage to the devil. And from, from that time, you don't see an immediate change. You see a gradual change in this work over several years. The first one of his books that I actually read uh, was in 78, The Final Conclave which happened to come out about the time that John Paul, or rather Paul VI died. Uh, and there, you could still see traces in opinions of the liberal he had been. But as time went on, these became less and less and less and less. And as you read his books, his earlier books, you can almost follow the progression. He's sort of working it all out, as it were, on paper. Uh, what's interesting to me also, he wrote a novel called Vatican, which was interesting because it uh, was basically a fiction about the post-Vatican II era. And it's worth reading. But the funny thing was, I recognized the villains. But the hero, it seemed to me, was an amalgam of several different people, including the late lamented Archbishop Elko. And I finally asked him about it. I said, you know, was uh, Archbishop Relco one of the inspirations for the hero? And he says, one of three. And I said, you know, Father, it's a pretty terrible time we live in when you can pull your villains right, right, out, of the, right out of the street. But you got to really work to construct your hero. Yeah. I know. I, I, hey, I, I talk about that a lot with uh, w with Timothy when when we were talking about even some uh, some recent releases in the in the entertainment uh, world that are pretty popular. We talk about the the whole um, where people draw from antagonists and and how the the protagonists are pretty are pretty limited. Uh, you know what's what what's going on here? I mean, and I think that's the, the the biggest thing about Windswept House that we were always wondering about was we we know now these decades later after the 1996 publication how the the next several decades of of uh, of history played out. So we know what's possible and what isn't. But um, but at the same time, we're always wondering where's the account where's the accounting of the uh, the warriors of the light here. Because we we can see the uh, we can see the the wicked everywhere, and and that plays out very easily in the news. We can see it; it's just running rampant. You just wonder when are we going to catch a break? And um, that's just uh, it, it's incredible that you know you're still talking about that years ago. Well, first and foremost, remember a couple of things. One is that while good is ultimately more powerful than evil, 
evil tends to be louder and flashier at any given moment. Number one. Speaking of flashy, uh, Charles, the, the the lamp behind you is throbbing, and it sure it's, is. it's a little it's a little distracting. I was wondering. It, I don't know what to do about it. Unfortunately, my nephew this this wreck is actually my home that my nephew and cousin have been living in while I've been gone, and everything is looked is hooked up to computer. Okay, it's like it's I, like because it's like Close Encounters of the Third Kind right now. I feel like they're trying to send I, I me a know. message. I know. Uh, all I could do is say, hey, Google, turn off the light. I can't get it to moderate it. My nephew isn't here to do anything. So. Okay. Well, well, we'll get through it. As long as your your sound is great. Um, where, where were we? Where were we? Uh, Timothy, were you, on a, uh, were you on, on a certain track that you were leading toward with the questions? I'm sorry. Well, I'm just wondering. This is something you and I were trying to sort through, Frank, as we went week to week. Charles, when... when, um, when Martin, when Father Martin would say this book, Windswept House specifically, is faction, fact fiction. The next question that any any reasonable viewers or listeners mind is like, okay, what what portion fact and what portion fiction? I did a show recently on Windswept House on my channel, and it was like so much of it. The most important stuff seems to be on the fact side, not the fiction side. I mean, he's making allegations, which I would. <laughs> I wouldn't say this if uh, if some of the South Carolina Mafia members were alive still for defamation charges, but he's making allegations that with a very slight uh, shift in the nomenclature of the names of the villains of of murder, you know, rape, things like that. Um, did did you ever get to ask him what portion of Windswept House was fact and what portion was fiction? Hmm. He said about four fifths was fact. <laughs> four fifths. It's heavy duty. That's heavy duty. Um, but you know, you, you've got to bear in mind that in in his for the for a period there, he was kind of a in a certain sense sort of a society priest, and he brought uh, he brought several people back to the faith or into the faith amongst the glitterati. Now you may remember, or you may not, but. Early 80s, late 70s, something like that. There was a congressman, I think the name was Generette from South Carolina. And he and his wife had a very messy breakup. Um, and, and part of the whole breakup process was her posing nude in Playboy. I mean, it was a, it was a real mess. Well, uh, he apparently was um, the one who brought her into the church afterwards because she... You know, she quickly faded from view, as people do, and then had to live with the results of what she had done, if that makes sense. Mm. She said something to him that was very interesting. Uh, she told him that she had encountered uh, devil worship in some of the higher echelons where entertainment and politics meet. And she recounted being at a Hollywood party, uh, and she noticed that people were passing something around. And she wasn't quite sure what it was. Well, funny, it came away and it was a golden phallus. <laughs> they were kissing it. So she uh, she made her side believe the party. <laughs> hmm. So uh, here's the problem we have anywhere at any time in history. In darkness, depravity grows. 
And remember that all of us human beings have on one side a yearning for the truth and on the other a spiritual death wish. It's the gift of our first parents for the fall. And any one of us, I mean, you think of the Epstein parties, you know, that have been so, so exciting. One woman goes to prison for it and none of the attendees. That's interesting. Mm. Uh, but when you have a lot of money and you have a lot of power, it's a huge temptation to give in to the worst side of yourself. I mean, stop and think about it. If you or I or any of the three of us could do or, or say or have anything we wanted with no apparent threat of repercussion, we'd be monsters. We'd be absolute monsters. Fortunately, poverty, ties of family, uh, all kinds of other things keep us from being faced with that kind of temptation. And that's why, parenthetically, uh, someone like Buster Emperor Carl is such an amazing character. Yep. Because he had all that and came out of it the same. Mind you, he had a lot of a lot of adversity too. We don't know what would have happened if they'd won the war. But still, uh, especially considering his father's lifestyle, it was amazing he turned out the way he did. Hmm. Well, having said that, this is true in the state and it can be true in the church, especially for churchmen who are willing to compromise their office with the great ones of this world. Didn't, didn't Charles, didn't, uh, it's a sidetrack, but the Masons contacted Blessed Carl directly and they said, we're, we're taking out your power, you'll be the last sovereign, aside from the Vatican Sea, right? In, in 1918 no. or so? 1918. Yeah. Well, yeah. He, he had a, um, they, they were gunning for him and so was our President Wilson. You know, at the end of the day, the reason why Kaiser Carl lost his throne and ultimately the reason why he died was because of our beloved president. Fortunately, he uh, he brought uh, segregation of the District of Columbia and and the Federal Reserve and uh, changed the Senate and did all kinds of fun stuff for everybody. Right. So it wasn't just Kaiser Carl who received his benevolence. So did the rest of us. You know, I I'd love to get it because now now we're getting into that um, that other area, just sticking with Father Martin and also that time of that time of uh, the twentieth century. I uh, it makes me think about something else that's really big about Windswept House in particular. Did he ever confide anything in particular regarding the third secret of Fatima to you, or or the uh, warning mentioned in uh, Garabandal, anything like that? No, no. Did you ever speak generally about it? Very generally about the nature of prophecy and how very often you don't really know what it means until it occurs. Uh, in other words, well, I, I remember we were discussing Fatima one night. And Fatima, it's a very interesting uh, prophecy, not just because the you know, the, the, we're discussing the first and second secrets, not the third. Um, and he, uh, you know, he pointed out, well, this this was certainly amongst the clearest prophecies we ever had. This war will end, but if mankind doesn't improve, etc., there'll be another and worse war that will break out in the reign of Pius XI. But notice something. 
There was no Pius XI at that time, of course. It was Benedict XV who spoke. And who knew when there would be a Pius XI? But Pius XI came to the throne in 1922. That war broke out in 1939, the last year of his pontificate. So a lot of people knew the Fatima message then. If in 1922 he had come to the throne and you said, oh my gosh, the next war is coming, got to hide out in the hills. Well, <laughs> you'd have been sitting there until 1939. <laughs> which really would not have been very helpful for you, your soul, or anybody else. So the thing the thing about prophecy is that it reminds us of several things. One, God is in, is in charge. It can give us a general indication and some hope. But of course, inevitably, what people forget are the messages of repentance that come with the prophecies. And even in the case of Fatima, you know, it says, uh, in time, my immaculate heart will triumph and there'll be a period of peace. Notice she doesn't mention the end of the world. Yeah. Right, yeah. She All she says is that there'll be a terrible tribulation. We'll go through it somehow or other. And then there'll be a period of peace. And then what? Hmm. Next chapter of the world's history, presumably. But do you ever speak to Martin about Akita, which is kind of Fatima too? That that, no. that speaks more apocalyptically. Never. It does. It does yeah. speak much more apocalyptically. Uh, but again, as with Pius XI, timing is never exact. Yeah. And that uh, is the same with La Salette. You know, yeah. it, you, you, the timing... You just can't tell. And again, I always remind people, and I think Father Martin would agree, for the, for the vast majority of us, the biggest thing about any given prophecy is to zero in on the penitential and devotional aspects. Those are what will get us through. Remember, let, let, let's remember one thing. We're all going to die. Everybody dying. Nobody gets out of here alive, in the words of that great theologian, Jim Morrison. Uh, the or Jim Cardinal Morrison, uh, as he's come to be known, but seriously, nobody does get out of here alive. And no matter what you do, there's only so much you can do for your future in a temporal sense. There's just no way around it. The best way to prepare for the the coming horrors, whatever they may be, is your spiritual life. Frequenting the sacraments, the corporal and spiritual works of mercy, the prayers and devotions. This, I mean, you can't say it often enough. Yeah. Um, it doesn't mean there's no importance to the prophecies. The prophecies are there to underline the importance of the actions prescribed, not the other way around. Yeah. You know, when I was in, uh, my confessor when I was in high school was James Francis Cardinal McIntyre, who was the then-retired Archbishop of L.A., and at the time, there was a fellow called Hal Lindsay, who was a, a Protestant minister, and he came out with a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. And in those years, we're talking about 1974, 75, a lot of apocalypticism. Of course, here in L.A., we're, we're always living on the edge of the apocalypse, you know, the big one that's going to sink uh, the city into the sea. But I asked the cardinal, I said, 
what do you think of all this? He said, well, look, the world is going to end sooner or later. We have that of a certainty. No man knows the day nor the hour. It may happen in your lifetime. It may not. But here's the thing. Your world is going to end. We know this within a few decades. If you're ready for the end of your personal world, that is to say your own death, then you'll be ready for the end of the world if it comes in your time, as it may. That's cr- that's a tr- that, you know that it's such a commonsensical thing to consider that right there, and it's the first time I've ever heard that articulated. Well, but, but, Charles, how about this though? This is the other side of it, uh, and it, it, that that's that's insightful and all, but like Father Martin just. Describes in more than one book the end of the pontificate. The yep. pontificate has always been a sort of basic unit of measurement over the last two thousand years, anyway, of human history. So h- how are we to? And it's such a big theme in Windswept House, the the end of the pontificate. How are we to make heads or tails of the end of the pontificate without thinking of it at least quasi apocalyptically? You know. Well, no, I, I'm not saying you shouldn't. Yeah. But don't be disappointed if the apocalypse doesn't happen in your time. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. I, did this okay. ever come up, though? Like, would just, like, you know, Father Martin, with all due respect, what the hell do you mean? What, what does it mean if the pontificate ends? Is that the end of human history, or is that like a... I, I, you see, it's, it's very difficult, frankly. Keys of his blood, keys yeah. of his blood was a book that in some ways I think he considered more important. And that gave us a future that, um, so far as I can tell, didn't happen. Uh, the great thing he expected to occur in 2000, John Paul II. What was that specifically? I haven't, I haven't read it. I've just had it. He wasn't, he wasn't, too, uh, he wasn't too specific. He thought there'd be some great, marvelous change for the good. Well, that was 22 years ago. Um, so, I mean, you've got to bear in mind that while he was a scholar, a very, very smart man, and I think, certainly when I know him, a very good one, um, I don't know that he had any particular insight into the future. I mean, let's put this another way. If you're very good at figuring out trends, you can appear prophetic. Uh I made the comment on my own podcast a few years ago that the fragility of our current civilization would be tested by a world pandemic. I had no idea COVID was coming, but I knew, given what I know about the way our global system works, that a real pandemic, and not this thing, I mean, a good uh, black plague or something, would really throw us into a monkey wrench because civilization has become so weird and complex um, it'd be a real problem. Well, I had all sorts of people ask me, how did you know? The answer is I didn't. I had no idea. But I did know that the system that we have, if tested in that fashion, would have a lot of problems. Hmm. I can see. Oh, sorry? No, I, I see what you're saying there about, about being able to just 
take the the factors that are there pre- presented on the table, knowing what you know about human um, human nature, the human condition, and also geopolitical um, alliances and, and uh, industrial realities. It's very easy to predict the future if you understand what drives all this, and it's pretty much human intention. Market forces is pretty much what is what's what's the ambition of humans. What is that? What, what drives them in a in an open marketplace or a closed one at that? So you can make a lot of predictions and be right. You can, and it, it doesn't mean that you've got any any particularly spiritual insights. It just means you know how life works, uh, given what you've got. And of course, garbage in, garbage out. The less you know, the less your predictions will work. And again, they're never perfect anyway, because they're always. Firstly, there's the divine will. Uh, and he often throws curveballs, thank God. I say thank God because I believe if he didn't, if life was purely the result of human intention, it would be hell on earth. But fortunately, it's not because he does things from time to time. Everything from raising up people to unexpected events. And that is, as I say, what makes life livable. Yeah. who expected a man like J.R.R. Tolkien to be produced by the trenches of World War One? But Charles, isn't isn't there a risk, a, a danger of being too dismissive of the fact that that Father Martin had access to the Third Secret of Fatima? I mean, it was anointed not, in the sense of being set. It was set aside from all the other prophecy. You know, was, in, in the, you know the last six hundred years of apparition, it was set aside couldn't be shared until 1960. He was one of the glitterati who had access to it. And no. um, it would, would, I don't think, we've talked about this before. I don't think you're dismissive of that, but we don't want to only read the sort of natural calculability of No, and, I, and as I say, I didn't, I'm not applying that. Listen, I'm not saying, I'm not dismissing it at all. Yeah. But I don't know the circumstances that he certainly didn't tell me under which he saw the secret. I know he saw it. I don't know. He didn't discuss with me that. I didn't ask him. You know, mm. if he felt like sharing, I'm sure he would have. Um, but he didn't. So, well, I can uh, What's that? I, I, uh, Charles, I, I want to ask you something because it's, it's 2.41 now, and I, I definitely don't want to take much more of an hour away from you, and I have other things I want to do, so I want to get at least two two more um, big things in here for me, and that is, number one is his death. This is another thing that has a lot of speculation. A lot of people think it's very, very uh, suspicious. Nobody knows what, what, how was he... How did he die? Was he was he uh, in the middle of an, an exorcism when it happened? Was it was it demonic in spirit uh, in nature? How he was how he was uh, how this trauma at the end of his life was caused? Um, obviously, at this point, you probably weren't talking to him on the phone. You were probably just reading the news like everybody else. But did did you have any any conversation that would give you some insight into what he may have thought was coming for him eventually? None. None. Okay. None. When you when you heard the news, when when you heard the news, what you uh, did you speculate at all? Did you think what could it be, or is it just mourning uh, the loss of a friend? It was both. 
I mean, I, I knew he'd been having a few health problems, but I wasn't expecting him to uh, die when he did. Um, and with a man like that, knowing what he knew and the kinds of people he knew, or knew may not be the right word, the kinds of people he was aware of, uh, you couldn't help but wonder. But I... I really have nothing to add to, I don't know any more than anybody else. Mm. Um, he, um, one thing you have to bear in mind too is that everything that had happened in the church, and some of which of course he had, was on the, the wrong side, you know, when he was younger weighed on him very, very greatly. He had a, when you, I mean, he was jolly when you made him, but he had a bit of a haunted manner. Uh, I remember he said to me once, if you're going to dine with the devil, you need a long spoon. Mm. <laughs> it's an old Irish saying, but, uh, you know, he'd been through a lot of different things and experienced things that most of us do not. And I suspect it took its toll. Now, frankly, I would not be surprised by anything that was uncovered. If it turned out he did die in the middle of an exorcism, I wouldn't be surprised. Not in the slightest. If it turned out he'd been done in by mafia, I wouldn't be surprised. If it turned out that he just had a heart attack and killed over, I wouldn't be surprised either. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, and I, I, I want to say, I don't mean this word in a pejorative, in any sense of the word. But in a lot of ways, Father Martin was an adventurer of a, of a type we rarely produce anymore. Um, he saw a lot of strange and amazing things. It was a, he played a important and supporting role in some of the well, the worst adventures of the church in the 20th century. I can't help but wonder a lot today what he would make of Pope Francis. Because certainly, I don't know that he would have imagined, the, the, the man who wrote Keys of This Blood might have had a very hard time imagining this. Um... One other thing, too, I, I should mention about prophecy. Remember, too, that as Our Lady has said in various places, the uh, terrible things can be ameliorated by our doing the devotional stuff. Prophecy is not written in stone. Remember, that one of the reasons the Church forbids fortune-telling is that it interferes with free will. And... Each of us has that wonderful gift of free will that we can use to pray, to do penance, to avert the disasters predicted, or not. Um, I, you, how do I put this? You don't want to be dismissive of prophecy at all. But you see, what you do, you tend to find people going in one of two directions. 
they dismiss prophecy and it's all about leading a good life or they dismiss leading a good life and it's all about prophecy <laughs> you know and you know the sort of person i mean uh the trick is to avoid either one anytime you feel yourself flagging in the um in the uh practice of your devotional life remember the prophecy and anytime you're tempted to despair because of the horrors of the prophecy remember your devotional life because you've got a chance to contribute to the averting of those horrors and even if it doesn't it contributes to you saving your soul and i guarantee you if we save our souls all of this will be like a bad dream hmm I, I love that outlook. Uh, it goes back to, once again, what you were saying before about about the end of the world and the end of your world, uh, losing track of those very, very necessary to remember and, um, and to grasp points of view. This is another one right there because I talk about this on a nightly basis when we discuss the news. Everybody is, um, and, and myself too, I'm, I'm a junkie for it. I love reading about conspiracy theory. I love talking about doomsday scenarios and this and that and trying to pick up new pieces to a puzzle we haven't found before. And It just it, it feels like even though you haven't left your, your house, you're Indiana Jones and you're, you're yeah. there on the front line of something very special. But uh, the other thing that I, I keep post-its around me to keep myself focused is do, you've got to be able to walk away from this and you have to live your life. The, the, every, every day, you've, you cannot give up willingly any day of your life because it's, you're not getting that one back. It's, it, it just really, uh, it's, it's really interesting to have to find a way to balance all that out. Tim, do you have anything else that you want to you wanna help me close with with Charles here? This has been fantastic. Yeah, it's a parting shot. Charles, uh, thanks for doing this. Frank, Frank, as always, thanks for doing it. I, I guess just my, my, my parting shot question would be on the cusp of what you said about Father Martin's speculative view of what Francis would have been. I mean, it, it, to tie it to the, the question of his death, I mean, he was writing about five or six of the supposed kingmakers in the so-called St. Gallen Mafia that are named or almost named characters in windswept house. And again, he's, he's naming them as some of the worst villains there. So it almost, when I, when I read windswept house, which was late, I meant to read it for 10 years. I only read it with Frank the last couple of months. I thought I'm, I'm glad I read this in the 10th year of the Francis pontificate because not to impute to Father Martin like superhuman powers, but it really seems like he knew something like a Francis pontificate was coming by knowing the guys who who knowing Francis, like like Achille Silvestrini, who's kind of the ultimate villain, even more so than Cardinal Bernadine in uh, the action. So that's quite possible. I, I mean, as I say, I wouldn't be surprised. You remember the priest of Wisconsin. Yes, had a, uh, a dossier on all of the uh, uh, non-binary clerics in his diocese, and he's uh, he's uh, killed, and the only thing stolen are the files. Well, as I say, it would not surprise me. Um, I just can't pretend to knowledge I don't have. Yeah, yeah, it it. 
you know, the, the other thing, too, you've got to bear in mind, I should say this, because uh, it may go on record as part of his uh, canonization process, that I was actually present at a miracle that occurred with Father, uh, Father Martin. Okay. Well, this is, yeah, let's hear about this. <laughs> well, I hope you're seated. In fact, I can tell you both of us so you can survive this maybe. All right. I was in New York one night, and I went out with Father Malachi Martin, the late lamented Father Paul Wickens of St. Anthony's in Orange, a traditional priest of some renown in Jersey, and uh, the equally late and equally lamented Dr. and Mrs. Timothy Mitchell, who uh, ran Pro Ecclesia in those days. So we all went out to dinner at the Barbizon Hotel. And we had a great dinner. The conversation was wonderful. The wine flowed. The food was great. And then the meal ended. The two priests fought over which of them would pick up the bill. <laughs> Is that the miracle? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was waiting for it. You told me that one I before. And I, I, I fell for it halfway through again. Then I was like, damn it, he's... he's He's doing the bill thing. Yeah, what's going to happen is he's going to make a he's going to make a, a pile of Sfoyadel uh, show up out of nowhere. What's going to happen? Oh, it's a check. I get it. Now that's fantastic. No way. I mean, think about this: two priests fighting over who gets to pay for layman's dinner should count. Should, should be one of two canonization criteria. Yeah. And you know, you know, Padre Pro was beatified shortly after that. I always wondered if that might have been one of the miracles attributed to it. This is this is true. You know, we, we three need, we should we three should do something like this again one day. I, I really have enjoyed uh, meeting you and speaking with you, Charles, and and uh, it's it's great to to have been able to ask these questions. I know obviously there's only so much you can do not being inside of uh, Father Martin's head, but the fact that you guys were friends and that I'm sure there's so much more we can draw out of you and um, not just necessarily on this topic, but things in general. I, I really enjoyed this so much, and um, I'd, love, I'd love for you to, to plug some of your work, tell everybody where they can find your books, if you still do your podcast, let everybody know where they can find you there. That would be wonderful. All right, I, I can do all that. Well, one other thing I, I, I should mention though about Father Martin, it's very important. Uh, you, as you may have guessed, I've got rather a jocular uh, personality. So did he. And a lot of our time together was joking and you know, telling stories and all that kind of thing. We had a very good time. It was, it was very good company. And believe it or not, in the midst of all of these other things, that's an important point to make. Because it was fun to be around. It was just a lot of fun. And if there's any quality to him that is easy to forget, because of everything else. It's that one. And it shouldn't be forgotten. Wonderfully said. Wonderfully said. Um, and, and, and where can find people find your work, Charles? All right. Well, you can find it in several places, actually. Uh, if you go to Tumblr House, T-U-M-B-L-A-R dot com, you'll see a big selection of my essays, etc. elsewhere on the Internet, and also some of them republished. Uh, they have uh, all of my books for sale. My latest book is Blessed Emperor Charles, the Legacy, uh, or Blessed Charles of Austria, rather, the Legacy of a Holy Emperor. You get that from Tumblr House and the publisher's Tan, or, of course, from uh, the the uh, Sons of the Widow at Amazon. Uh, 
<laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help myself. It's okay. Uh, the uh, the podcast you will find it's called Off the Menu. It's usually done every week, but we took a break for the month of July, uh, and that you will find um, on uh, the YouTube Tumblr House channel. Uh, you can find my my uh, stuff also at the European Conservative at Catholicism.org. You can find a lot of uh, stuff I've done also at uh, Crisis Magazine. Oh, and I also right now for 1 Peter 5, I've just had a uh, an article come out this past week on hyperpapalism, uh, which it, you might find of, of some interest. But let me see. I think that about does it. I'm working right now on, I have to crank out two books this year, say a prayer, I, I don't go crazy. Uh, one is A Life of Empresita, Carl's wife, who is a servant of God. She's not a blessed yet, she's a servant of God. Uh, interestingly, his feast day is their wedding day. So presumably if she is beatified, it'll be a joint feast. Uh, I'm also working on a uh, collection of their son, Archduke Otto's writings about America. So... How fun to, da to, to dance and to play play inside of history and to make books and do podcasts. It's a, a wonderful, wonderful workflow you got there, Charles. It was great meeting you again. Tim, any, anything you want to add? No, God bless you, Charles. I want to talk to you about Puritan's Empire sometime on my channel. Maybe maybe the three of us can hang out sometime on my channel sometime soon. You let uh, me know. I, I'd love to be a, I, of course, I would be a, a backseater at that point to uh, contribute a little bit of my naive curiosity to the uh you guys are learned masters of the subjects so i'm uh I, i'm just happy to be be here and uh and and contribute in any way shape or form thank you both so much thanks all right well thank you both for having me and uh you know again to uh to say something uh, to you to uh give a phrase that father martin surely knew because it was the standard of the irish schools of his childhood keep the faith Amen. Certainly will. Thank you so much, Charles. Thank you, Tim. I will talk to you both soon, and uh, away we go. God bless. Take care.